All right, John chapter 2. We'll begin there, and then we'll get back to Revelation 19. There was once a king who fell in love with a poor, simple maiden, and yet this king was unusual because he didn't want to just overpower her or offend her or embarrass her, uh, but he really wanted her to fall in love with him for who he was. And so he, he thought about going to her little cottage with all of his kingly glory and his, his majesty and his outfit and his carriages and horses and showing up at, his front, at her front door and declaring his love for her. Uh, but he was concerned that she would fall in love with his kingly power and majesty and glory and not really him. And so he didn't want to do that. He realized that wasn't the best thing to do. Um, and then he thought about disguising himself as a beggar and going as a poor man to her house and declaring his love for her. But then he realized that if she fell in love with him as a beggar, that wouldn't really be him. It would just be him in disguise and pretending, uh, and she'd be in love with somebody other than he really is. And so the only solution for him was to actually become a beggar and to stop being a king and to really leave it, fully leave it all, and become a beggar, not pretend to be one, not disguise himself as one, but become one. And that is exactly what he did. So that then, as he declared his love for her, she could then freely love him back for who he was as another poor beggar. Now that story illustrates what God did for us. And that God loved us so much, he did not overpower you or me. He did not come in all of his glory and majesty and kingship, but he did what was called the incarnation. He became one of us. In such a way that the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that none of us would be drawn to him by his glory and majesty, but he became a beggar just like us, a, a poor man, and that, so that he could have a bride, us, and marry us, and we would love him for who he is and not for getting something out of him. Now, the dominant biblical image of our relationship to God at the end of history is a bride that we will be his bride and he is the groom. Now, you know, many women will sometimes complain, oh, you know, the Bible speaks about sons of God, you're going to be sons of God. What about us? You know, I've got good news for you. The dominant image of the end is we're going to be the bride of Christ. Ha-ha, men on that one. We will be his spouse, his bride, and he's the groom. And that is the image that carries for all of eternity. That is the major one. And, and uh, so God's looking to relate to you, not as a boss, uh, and even more than a son and a friend and a servant, God's looking to relate to you as a, as a spouse, as a bride. And understanding that is critical to living out your Christian life. It's very critical for having a healthy marriage, and it's very critical for being a single person involved in relationships with other people potentially getting married. And so this is really the end of this whole series on, on, on marriage and relationships, and this is going to be called The Ultimate Marriage. And this whole series had to end with this because this is kind of like the capstone of it all. And this needs to be in place for there to be healthiness in relationships and in really, you'll see, all of your Christian life. So uh, let's begin with John chapter 2. I want to give you some background and then I'll give three critical issues that need to be established to move forward. Okay, John chapter 2 is a story that's read at all these weddings on uh, the, the miracle at Cana. And uh, if you remember, many of you know the story. It's these two teenagers get married, uh, but at the reception, there wasn't enough wine. And it's really an embarrassing situation. We don't know who was responsible, but somebody messed up. And uh, the receptions lasted a week in those days, which is a long time. Very expensive also. I have four daughters, I can't imagine. A one-week party. Uh, 
but at some point the wine ran out. And so it's, isn't it interesting that Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding? Like, it was just an embarrassing situation at the reception. But yet he cares about those little, little things in life. I mean, he cared about those two teenagers who were embarrassed. And, I mean, if you don't think God cares about the little things in your life, you're wrong. He does. He puts your tears in a bottle and he holds on to it. And it's at this first little wedding reception, he does his first miracle and reveals his glory. But only a few people, it says at the end of this passage, really understood the significance of the miracle. And uh, I want to bring that out to you right now. Because verse uh, 3, Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding. And it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Four, four. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And his mother says to, said to his servants, the servants, do whatever he tells you. His mother said to the servants, I'm sorry, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water, would have been turned into wine, and then it goes on. Ah, I can't believe you. You saved the best wine till the last. And, and then it says in verse 12, uh, he thus revealed his glory. This was his first sign. He revealed his glory and his disciples. Only a few really grasped it, and they put their faith in him. So, now verse 6, underline verse 6, because many people pass over it. The author, John, who was there, makes the point that the water was in six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing, uh, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, this was the way to get to the presence of God, was to wash your hands in this, in this certain water and wash any utensils that you were going to use. But this water was essential for any Jewish believer to go into the presence of God. And it's this water that Jesus turns into wine. Uh, so so uh, the question is, why does Jesus in verse 2, uh, verse 4, I mean, he's kind of nasty to his mom. Any of you ever picked that up? I mean, you know, supposed to be a modeling, honoring your mother and father. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. I mean, it's kind of, it seems kind of harsh. Now, the, the phrase, my time has not yet come, occurs four or five times in the Gospel of John. And every time he says, my time has not yet come, he's thinking about death. He's thinking about the moment he's going to be crucified and die. And so he, 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 he says to the mom, his mother, basically, don't bother me. Now, why? And, and because Jesus is thinking, Jesus is at a wedding, but he's thinking about his wedding day. And he knows that for his wedding day to take place, someone has to die. And the person who's got to die is him. So when he says, my time has not yet come, he's thinking about his death. I mean, he's waited 30 years. He's just about to begin his ministry. It's going to last a short time, and bam, he's going to die. It's going to all be over. This miracle kicks everything off. And uh, so, I mean, Jesus made the bold claim to be God. And God in the Old Testament refers to his relationship with his people often as, I'm the bridegroom and you're the bride. And uh, Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom now, and you're the bride, God, speaking to God's people. And he's saying, for example, this, remember he was criticized for why don't your disciples fast in Mark chapter 2, and he goes, you don't fast while the bridegroom is still here. And he's referring to himself as the bridegroom. 
He knows he's getting married. In fact, John the Baptist said, referred to himself in John 3, I'm the best man. And I'm just pointing to the bridegroom, but when he comes, I must decrease, but he must increase. But I'm just the best man. I'm not the groom. You get your eyes on the wrong person. The bridegroom's coming. And uh, so Jesus is thinking, Jesus is at this wedding, but he's thinking deeply about what will it take to have a relationship with my people? What's it going to take for my wedding day to take place and be intimate and have a relationship with my people? And he knows what it's going to take is going to be death. There's not going to be a wedding until he dies. And so for him, while everybody's celebrating, he's aware and sobered by the fact of what his wedding day is going to cost. And so, you know, you understand, for the, for the bride to fall into his arms, for the bride to fall into his arms of intimacy and being ravished, uh, the waters of verse 6 of purification are not enough. The water is not enough to get into that bridal relationship. It is going to take that water being changed to wine. That's why the miracle is more than simply a provision of wine. It's a very powerful miracle for those who could see it. And that, in other words, there was going to need to be blood before that relationship of bride and bridegroom could take place. That's why it says in the Lord's Supper, at the end of the Gospels, when we celebrate communion, he says, this cup is the blood of my covenant. Or this wine is the, is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And every time you do this, remember me and, you know, pointing to the wedding feast. But, but the water must be changed to wine, referring to, to blood. In other words, there's only one way for the wedding to take place that Jesus is headed for, and it's going to be his blood. It's going to be his life. It's going to be his giving of himself. My time has come, and that moment he goes on the cross and is glorified. So as one commentator said so beautifully, Ed Clowney, we have Jesus at this wedding in the midst of great joy, sipping what's going to be for him coming sorrow. But we, in the midst of great sorrow in life, we sip the coming joy. And that which is ahead for us. You see, the wine for Jesus represents all the, the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on sin, on him at that moment on the cross, the wine is his blood. It's a cup of God's wrath. But that wine, that cup for us, is a cup of blessing that enables us to come into the presence of God. And the wine is significant because they had celebratory wine at, at weddings. And wine is a, is, a, is a symbol of celebration and joy and feasting. And, 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 but we are to enter into this feasting. And wine is so symbolic of there's a celebration and a feasting of the presence of God. We are to taste and literally, think of tasting wine. We are to taste God and enjoy him. And, and it's an invitation to you, for you. This, this little story is the beginning of an invitation, and God invites you to an eternal wedding feast with him. It's not just a, a, a week. It's eternal. It begins and never ends. And he invites everyone, every person in the world is invited to that feast to become his bride. And he says, when you taste it, that celebration will last forever. That's why it says, taste and see the Lord is good. And so there's much more to this miracle than originally meets the eye.
as Jesus turns the water into wine and some perceive his glory and the depth of significance of what's happening here. All right, now go with me to Revelation 19. God loves you so much. Hear this. God loves you so much, he wants to marry you. God loves you so much, he wants to marry you. That's why the image is no longer of a son and of a friend and of a servant. As we get to the end, God wants to marry you. And, and, and he's pursuing you. He pursues us with a holy love. And in the Old Testament, this image is used quite a bit, but it's always used in regards to God's people wandering after other lovers and other gods. And God says, oh, my, my, my wife, where are you going? My, 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 my spouse. And in Hosea, he talks about, write this verse down, it's a great verse, Hosea 2, verse 6. God says this, you chase after your many lovers. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. Did you ever run away from God? And God puts thorn bushes all around you? And it's like you try to get away from God and find your life in something else, whether it's a relationship or money or career. And it's like it's thorn bushes here. And God says, I'm going to block your way so you come back to me. It says in Hosea 2.6, I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. I'll put walls around you so you're stuck. You hit dead ends and you've got to come back to me. Because I love you so much. God doesn't force himself like that original parable I read in the beginning of the story. He doesn't overwhelm us. He pursues us with heartache and frustration and pain and, because he wants a bride who freely loves him. He wants you to freely love him. He doesn't want to make you or, or force you or overwhelm you. God doesn't punish his people. That's not God. God disciplines, yes, he puts walls and thorns because he loves you, but he wants free love this way. He wants a bride. He's not looking to be your boss. He wants to be your, your, uh, your husband. Now, at this wedding, God clothes you for the wedding. He clothes me for the wedding. That's the gospel. Now, have you ever noticed in weddings, all brides are, are beautiful? I mean, I've never seen an ugly bride. No matter what she looks like in real life, she's beautiful. Now, I have the privilege of doing many weddings. And when you're doing a wedding, you know, there's the guy up front and the groom's here, you get a good view. And I tell you, when, when the bride steps through those doors and the music plays, and, and, and she's looking really as good as she's ever going to look. I mean, this moment, you've got the dress and the makeup and the hair. And the, I mean, it's just a, it's a beautiful sight. And, 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 and the groom, generally, if you look at his face closely, you know, he's like, you know, that first glance, oh, you know, and, and he's wild with emotion, you know, and, you know, and on a ravisher, you know. And, Let's get this thing over quick, you know. You know, and, 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 and he's looking, you know, with his eyes as he, as he locks on his bride. Now that's, that's the picture here. That's how Jesus feels when he sees you. Because you're not clothed in your good works, which, to be honest, are pretty ugly. But you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so he sees you and you're a beautiful bride at that moment. And he loves you. And he's ravished. And he's wild. And he wants to say, let me at him. And look at Revelation chapter 19. I just love that. You know, one, uh, one commentator said it's, it's the most 
perhaps the most beautiful verse in the Bible. And uh, it's when in verse 9, the angel says to John, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. One scholar wrote, that is perhaps the most beautiful verse and promise in all the Bible. But I doubt if any of us here would have ever chosen that as our favorite verse. Because I don't think we've really grasped what it even means. And he added, these are the true words of God. In other words, Jesus says, I see you as a groom when he first fixes his eyes on his beautiful bride. And that's why it says in places like Zephaniah 3, 16, 17, and 18, I, will, I, 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 I take great delight in you. I, I quiet you in my love. I want to shout over you with shouts of praise and joy. Because that's how he looks at you in Christ. And I mean, how dare Jesus say that he relates to us as a bridegroom? I mean, what, what audacity, what, a, what, a, what an incredible image. He says, that's, that's our relationship. You are the bride and I'm the groom. And that's how I see you, clothed in my righteousness and my blood. And See, he sees you and he sees me as absolutely gorgeous. Can you hear that? He sees you as he looks down the aisle as absolutely gorgeous. And he's ravished. He's enraptured. Why? Because you're clothed in what's called in the Bible the righteousness of Christ. You're clothed in new clothing. The bridal dress is, 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 the, is the washed in the blood of Christ. It's pure. It's linen. It's beautiful. And he's ravished. You're in Christ. And he's like, I want to marry you. I love you. Now, okay, with that in mind, it's three kind of critical truths that flow out of this that I want to bring here this morning, all right? That we need to grasp to have healthy marriages, relationships, and a Christian life. First is this. Say this, I am married to God. I, oh, thank you. I wasn't expecting a response, but that's good. <laughs> Recognizing that he's your spouse. Whether you're single or married, you're first, you're married to God. He is your spouse. In other words... He's the only one who can love you perfectly. There's no human being that can love you perfectly. He's the only one that can love you wisely. He, he's the only one who can love you with and listen to you perfectly and cover your sins and mistakes and offenses perfectly. He's the only one who can love you and see all of your junk of who you are and love you with a perfect love. He's the only one who can do good to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all through eternity. He's the only perfect spouse that you can have. And see, human beings can forgive, but, but very often I don't always feel covered when they forgive. But that's not the case with God. When he forgives and covers, he covers and forgives. You see, the best marriages, now I'm talking the best marriages, at the best moments, I mean, just think of the, your best moment if you're married here you ever had with your spouse, the most ecstatic moment. That is just a dim reflection. A little, little bit of, of the kind of relationship that you will have with God if you know Christ. Now, let me try to put it this way. Just, in other words, in, in heaven, there will be a, a, a one flesh. There will be an intimacy with Jesus that will be so rapturous It'll be so incredible that it will be comparing the dew. Think of, think of a dew on, on, a, on, a, on, an e on a morning. A drop of dew on the grass. That's the dim reflection we sometimes experience in love with another person. 
it's just a drop of dew. The bridal love with your spouse, Jesus, would be in comparison to that like the Atlantic Ocean. That's how big the gap is. Many of us think this is it. This little drop of dew, this is nothing. This is a drop of dew, it's a dim reflection. But this Atlantic Ocean is what your marriage with Jesus will be like. Now, just hold on to that for just a second, because remember the Garden of Eden? And the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with each other and with God. And we talked about that a number of weeks ago. And, and there, was, there was profound intimacy. They were so close. They were vulnerable. There was no sin in the garden. They, they were able to, no shame, total openness, total ability to receive love, give love, no mixed up emotions inside, just uninterrupted joy and bliss. And then, as we know, sin came into the picture. There was a betrayal of God. And, uh, and then the curse enters, Genesis chapter 3. And now, the, the intimacy with God is broken, as well as their intimacy with each other, in terms of community and a first marriage. And now there's anger and blaming and, and negative words of murder and, and loneliness and shame and, and hiding and, and divorce and, 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 um, and abuse and all these other things that come in, coldness and... And total intimacy is no longer possible between two human beings. Total intimacy just, it is not possible this side of heaven. We taste it, but we never experience it fully, as we shall in some day. And, but you see, because our love for people is affected and marred by the curse and by sin. Now, in Christ, that's why this series has been so important, because of Christ and, the, and, and, and all the resources God has made at our disposal, there is a path back to the garden made available to us. There is a path to intimacy with your spouse, with close friends, family life. There, there is a path through the Word, through the Spirit, through, uh, uh, through prayer, through the body, uh, through the Word, but it requires warfare. There is a, uh, we need a Savior for our relationships. We need a Savior. We're to be broken by the curse. I need Jesus to experience the kind of intimacy in the garden that God has for me. I can't do it alone. I need a Savior. And, uh, but there's great potential for love and glory in marriages and in relationships. I don't know if you ever, any of you ever thought about the verse where it says, Jesus says, there will be no marriage in heaven. Luke chapter 20. You say, well, I'm not going to know my wife, you know? <laughs> I mean, hey, honey, sorry, don't touch me. I'm not married anymore. <laughs> I don't, there's a lot of joking about that verse. But, and we don't know a lot of things about heaven. Uh, but we know this, heaven will not be a dull place. If you're dull, heaven will not be dull. Be filled with passion, filled with feelings, filled with sensuality, filled with emotion, and filled with enormous intimacy. But uh, I, I, I think that heaven is, there will, not be no, there will be no marriage because in, in a sense, in some unimaginable way, we're going to all be married. Think of what, if you ever had experience as a teenager or as a kid or as an adult of falling in love with somebody, like, even just it lasted for a couple of days or a week until you woke up, you know what I mean? That, that feeling of just, you know, you have this ideal of this person and you fall in love. You're just head over heels and you can't think straight. You're, you're just consumed with this person. You are in love. Now, imagine that feeling, that, that, that intensity that, and a couple, that's what happens to a couple that drives them to make this lifelong commitment, that intensity. Imagine... Heaven will be like that. You will have that feeling of being in love with everybody. With an, with, with an enormous intensity, without any limits of energy or time commitments or, 
or personal struggles, you will be able to love everybody with that same intensity of being in love. It's like you married everybody. And marriage is a one, one other person. Now you can do it everybody all at the same time. Now, in other words, in heaven, we'll, we will be capable of an intimacy that's unbounded. You'll be capable of an intimacy with another human being in God, which you, you barely, barely taste right now. Now, I say this because in, in, in Revelation 19, verse 9, when it says there's going to be a wedding feast, that the wedding feast, that what Jesus is restoring, he's not just restoring the Garden of Eden. He's beyond the Garden of Eden. We're headed for a wedding feast. And if you're a Christian today, you are married now to Jesus. If you've invited Christ in your life, you are married. You may not be living like it, but you're married to Jesus. And you will be married to Jesus. In other words, like you are saved, yes, and you will be saved. It's both. You're married and you will be married. There's more coming. So hold on to that. That's number one. So number one is to be able to say, you know something? I am married to Jesus. I'm married. I am a married man. Single or not, I'm a married man. Number two, one wedding will, only one wedding will do. Only one wedding will do. Some of you are single here. And you are waiting for your wedding. And it's very, this sermon's been painful just to get to this point because all this talk about wedding because it brings up such hard feelings. And when you think of wedding, it's painful because you're looking forward to your wedding. And some of you are divorced here and you think back of your wedding day and all the hopes and expectations you had for that wedding day did not happen. And so when you think of a wedding, it's very painful too. And others of you are married, and you're in a marriage that's disappointing. And again, when you think of your wedding day, it's, you're just, it's disappointing. It's very painful. Now, I just want to say that your pain is real. It's a real pain, and I don't want to uh, minimize that. But this, and Jesus transforms, relativizes, he, he transforms our pain. Because he wants us to understand that only one wedding will do. In other words, the first embrace that you have from Jesus will undo 10,000 lives of hurt and loneliness. The first kiss from Jesus will make the worst life ever lived seem like it was just a bad night's sleep on a crummy pillow. Just the first kiss from Jesus. In other words, there's only one wedding day that will remove all hurt and pain. And this is it. There is no other wedding that can do that or event. Go to chapter 21. You see, there's a great medicine for pain. And there's only one wedding that will do. Chapter 21, beginning at verse 2, with Christine read, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, who, who beautifully dresses this bride? God does, in, in, in the righteousness of Christ. Who dresses you for the wedding? He does. Now, there is a verse in, we read earlier from Revelation 19 that speaks about the righteousness are, 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 the, are the good deeds. Because, again, it's that whole balance of grace produces good works. And so there's a flowing of good works that happen, too, that is also your, your bridal outfit. But uh, the, the dominant figure first here is the fact that God's prepared you beautifully. You're gorgeous. 
Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In other words, only one wedding will do that. You see, for singles, the wedding day that you want is really not what you want. Because only one wedding day will give you what you want. Nothing less than the perfect relationship in a perfect world with perfect people and perfect circumstances is going to satisfy your soul. And so you have a deep thirst as a single person for marriage, okay? But you need to understand that that deep thirst for intimacy that you're longing for cannot be satisfied fully this side of heaven. Only one wedding will do. You see, Jerry and I have a good marriage. Uh, but you know something? It's not enough. It's just not enough. Uh, she's not a great enough spouse, nor am I, to fully satisfy and fulfill. Because only one wedding day will do. We can both say we need a better, more mature love and a better spouse. In other words, if you're single here, don't put your hope for a spouse in place of Christ. Because you'll kill that person. They can't fulfill that. Because only one wedding day will do. And if you're married here, don't put your spouse in place of Christ. You'll kill them. Because they can't be that for you. Only God can. Only your true husband can. That person's just a dim reflection. And if you impose it on them, that's called idolatry. And it really kills intimacy and twists the relationship in a way that God never intended. Remember we talked about idolatry is a craving uh, gone mad. It's an over-attachment to something. And, and uh, so in other words, you think, well, what makes you feel like a man? What makes you feel like a woman? What makes you feel good about yourself? And many of us will say, you know what? Many of us will say, I feel good about myself when, when I'm in control of the situation. I feel good. Or, or, when, or when people approve of me and, and like me, I, I feel good. Or, you know, when I'm, when I'm in competition and I'm succeeding. Or, you know, when I get my degree and when I get that master's, I'll feel good about myself. And, and, uh, or when I have a girlfriend, I'll feel good about myself. Or when I have a boyfriend, I'll feel good about myself. Or when I've got my marriage all together, I'll feel good about myself. Or when I got that job I want, I'll feel good about myself. And my question to you is, what makes you feel like a man? What makes you feel like a real woman? And, and uh, is it school? Is it being in control? Is it being comfortable? But anything that you add to Jesus to make you happy is an idol. Because you're looking for feeling right with yourself and God based on something other than the righteousness of Christ. And that's idolatry. Because I feel good about myself because I've been dressed in robes of righteousness, a bridal gown washed in the blood of Jesus. And you see, Satan tries to take the good things of life and turn them into idols, and we get our eyes off of Jesus and on other things to feel good about ourselves. Now, so, so here, here's this thing about this. Only, only one wedding will do. 
is to turn away from the things that, quote, give you life more than Christ. And then to put your faith in Christ, I'm talking about daily. I turn from idols, I turn from these things that pull after my love and devotion and feeling good about myself that I've made it, and I put my faith in Christ, Colossians 3.1, my life is now hidden with Christ in God. I put my mind on things above, not on things of this earth. And I live as a son, I live as a friend, I live as a bride, that's who I am. And only one wedding day will do. And that's my day with him. Everything else is a dim reflection. Let me close with this. The third principle is this. Stop settling for bread and water. Is there's, there's more than bread and water in life. Living as a prisoner. Many of us are very happy just eating bread and water on a daily basis in terms of our, our, our Christian experience. Woe is me. Life is so hard. Oh, the pain of life. Oh, Pete, if you knew the stress I was under. Oh, the hassles, the annoying, the irritating people around me. Oh, they drive me nuts, you know. And the stress and the pain and, 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 and the lack of joy. Now, my point is this. Life is difficult. Life is painful. Life never fully satisfies. But you know something? There is more joy than you know. We may not have the full reception laid out for us yet. We may not have the full eternal feast. Yes, and burn, grab the wine. Lord, pass me a lamb, you know. But there is an appetizer now. The hors d'oeuvres are laid out for the wedding feast. We're already in a little bit of the wedding feast now, and we're in the appetizers and the hors d'oeuvres, although we're not in the full feast of Revelation 19 and 21. My point is many of us are living with bread and water like we're prisoners. And the Lord says, no, don't you understand? You're married now. The feast already has begun. But it's only the appetizer time. And there's more coming. And so, in other words, we are to be a celebrating people. We're to be a playful people. We're not to be so intense and so uptight about life. I, I, I keep thinking of the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. Remember how stiff he was? You know, a lot of us are really stiff in life, but we, we, we got married to God and we're at a wedding and we're all like, you know, the Lord says, come on, let's do a little dancing. We're like, you know, we need some oil under the arms and the elbows. Oil, loosen up! <laughs> loosen up! I love this sound. Meet, meet, meet. We should get, uh, someone's got you know, a little oil can. You know. <laughs> many of us go to parties to get happy. We go to a party to get happy. You don't need to go to a party to get happy. There's a party now. And it's your feast, it's the wedding feast. The hors d'oeuvres are out. There is a feasting element, a playfulness, a joyfulness that is ours. That we are to be living in, even in the midst of a world filled with sorrow and pain and difficulty and, and going away from God. There's a feast now. And that's why it says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards used to say that, that when you become a Christian, God gives you the ability to taste him. It's more than just knowing him. You have now, by the Holy Spirit, and a, a grace to taste God with your senses. And, and the Lord says, now come and taste, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Eat, drink, dance now. It's not all future. And, 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 and there's, there, there's a relationship and a communion to which God calls you with himself. And it's a tasting and a and an enjoyment of the feast of him. And he's given you, if you're a believer here today, the, the taste buds to enjoy the appetizer. And not just live on bread and water anymore. And so, 
You know, again, I, I think of us, you know, many of us, we, have, we, we, we go after power or we go after controlling people or we go after, or we feel good about ourselves if, we're, if we're, everything's going beautifully, there's no pain in life, everything's comfort, or, or we feel good about ourselves and we're getting all this approval from other people. And God says, no, nah, no, nah, that's living on bread and water. Let me tell you, there's a feast available to you and it's being, it's coming, it's, it's, it's living in Christ. The fact that in the righteousness of Christ, by the blood of Christ, you're, you're dressed in a beautiful wedding dress. Clean, pure, spotless. And the Lord Jesus looks at you, he's ravished. And he goes, come taste and see the Lord is good. Don't go after those other gods and kill you. Turn from those things. Come and taste the Lord is good. You'll be free. So Jesus had one thing in front of him, his whole earthly life. You know what that one thing is? My time has not yet come referring to he had the cross in front of him. We are to have one thing in front of us. Do you know what that is? Jesus gave his life for me. It's the wedding. So I could get married to him. So I could be at the end of that aisle as he locks his eyes on me and all of my path and ravish me as a groom does a bride at the moment she walks through the door. And I have my eyes on that one moment. All right, let me just close with a little illustration. I know not everybody here is a basketball fan, but it works. In the NCAA finals, basketball finals, and this applies to soccer if you're a soccer fan or football fan, that when an underdog gets into the final four, they already won. It's like they're so happy they've gotten to the final four that they play with a recklessness and for the opposing team, who's the favorite, it's very scary to play an underdog who, got, who, who feels like they already won just by getting to the end, the playoffs. And so they're the, they're the scariest team to play because they're playing with an abandonment and a recklessness, taking 30-foot shots, you know, just fearless. Now, in the same way, it's like we were the underdogs. And it's like we, are, we made it to the finals already. In other words, in your life, you already won. You won. In Christ, you won. You have nothing else to prove. It's done. That's why I said, if I preach a lousy sermon today, it doesn't matter. I already won. <laughs> I won. I made it. I'm clothed in the, in the righteous garments as a bride of Christ. By his blood, I won already. So you know something? You approach life so differently, don't you? Yeah. Ah, you don't like me. Ah, I love you. You know, it's approval, control, comfort. I, I'm just... I'm in rapture because I realize that, you know, I'm married to Christ. Only one wedding will do. And you know something? There's more than bread and water. There's hors d'oeuvres here for me to eat and taste and enjoy. With that perspective, you can now enter into healthy relationships with the opposite sex, single or married, and really enter into a Christian life that sets you free.